Welcome to OncoPharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of OncoPharm, ETSU's Bill Gadden College of Pharmacy. It is February 9th, 2023. I've uh, got two uh, recent publications to talk about. Uh, one very common solid tumor, one very common liquid tumor. So let's start with, with the solids. Let's start with code break 200. So this was uh, a study in non-small cell lung cancer of uh, docetaxel versus sotortacib or sotoracib in uh, second-line treatment or previously treated non-small cell lung cancer. We talked about the top-line results of this study when it was press release released um, a while back. Um, this is the publication uh, two days ago in Lancet Oncology. Um, so these are pages all with the KRAS G12C mutation. And just looking at our, at our background here, this mutation is about um, maybe 15, uh, th th they say 13 to 16% of lung adenocarcinomas. Um, usually if you have the KRSG12 mutation, um, you're not having any of those other activating mutations. So this was um, you know, a large study of uh, 148 sites in 22 countries. Um, Sometimes, you know, we look at an international study as, as great because of external generalizability, but sometimes you wonder about, um, the, you know, the second-line care in, in nations that are not the United States, and maybe they're not up to the standard of care that we have here or where you practice in, in Australia, United Kingdom, wherever. Um, uh, not so much of a problem in this study since uh, their design um, maybe doesn't matter what they got second-line, but of these 22 nations, most of them are in the G20, and all the ones that are not members of the G20 are, are European nations. So this is a very Western European uh, study with, uh, with Japan and, and South Korea as well. Um, so there were about 180 in, in each arm here, randomized one-to-one, -one after they received platinum-based chemo and an immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, to either uh, Sotorosib or Docetaxel. The um, original plan was like 650 patients powered for both progression-free survival and overall survival, but they changed based on regulatory feedback. So somebody at FDA or the European Union or whoever said, you don't need to do this for overall survival. Uh, and they, they, they had um, their phase two data, so they changed it so that they're only gonna look at progression-free survival. And since you're only looking at progression-free survival, they're saying, we don't care what happens after pro progression, so they allow people with docetaxel to cross over to uh, satoracin, which is probably good from a patient perspective. That's probably what we would do in practice, uh, but it, it is gonna make it potentially harder to see an overall survival benefit if satoracin is, is helpful. So that was the study, right? And we talked about uh, you know, the top line results when it came out that there was a statistically significant progression-free survival in favor of satorcid versus docetaxel. Uh, we know that the median follow-up here was 17 months, 18 months rounding up, and uh, the hazard ratio for progression-free survival uh, was 0 0.66, um, hazard ratio of 0.51 to 0.86, median PFS was 5.6 with satorcid versus 4.5 months. So if we were to use a baseball analogy, this is a solid single, maybe a bloop double. It's definitely not a hard hit double to the gap. It's maybe like a, a lumbering first baseman in, in, uh, uh, in Boston who rockets one uh, to the green monster, hits it real hard, but still only gets to first base. You know, the, the Katmeyer curves here are 
um, consistent, but it's not overwhelmingly impressive. It's not like there's a huge, huge, huge improvement in the rate of progression-free survival here uh, with, with Satorsib versus Docetaxel. One thing that is worth pointing out here in our cat marker, we see the censoring because Lancet Oncology puts in who is censored. So if you're following somebody along the Kaplan-Meier curve, that curve is going to go down if it's a PFS curve. Well, the curve will go down if it's an overall survival curve if they die. That's it. For a progression-free survival curve, the curve will go down if there is death or a progression event. And how do you determine if it's progression event versus a death event? You can't tell from just looking at the PFS curve, but if you overlap the overall survival curve, if they perfectly overlap, all those events in the PFS curve are death. In this case, the overall survival curve is, is flatter. PFS curve drops pretty sharply. So these are progression events. So a progression event could be primary progression, right? The disease gets worse pretty quickly. It could also be a progression event if there is a response and then the response is lost and then there's progression. So not all progression events are necessarily the same. Um, you can have a progression event that is just stable disease for six months and then it progresses. Um, so, so that sometimes can be a little misleading, which is why we always prefer overall survival. This is metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. And yes, in the immune checkpoint inhibitor era, these patients do live longer, but it's still a pretty, um, you know, a pretty fast moving, a pretty deadly disease. All right, back to censoring. Uh, at the very first um, kind of point at two months when they're doing the scans, right? That's what you see a whole bunch of people progress. 39 patients are censored right away in the dose of tax alarm compared to just nine with satorsib, despite there being 170 patients in both arms approximately. So these patients that are censored means either they're, they're no longer gonna be followed. Um, it's not that they had a progression of it. It's not that they died. It could be that they withdrew consent. It could be they were lost to follow-up. Um, you know, it could be they enrolled in the study hoping that they would get satorsib. They didn't want chemo. They're randomized to chemo and they just don't show up anymore. And, uh, or that they have a side effect from chemo and they drop out and you just fall asleep. So there's an imbalance going forward from there. The effect that may have it, you know, it's impossible to say. Um, all right, before we get to overall survival, which again was not the primary endpoint after the protocol amendment, the PFS rates look pretty consistent across the board. There is maybe one efficacy signal in the Asian race, the hazard ratio was 0.33 versus 0.71 in non-Asian. Now, it's a very wide confidence interval. There are only 43 patients. That is probably just noise. In the It's probably just noise, but you do wonder if may, perhaps there is something there. We have seen in lung cancer some differences in effectiveness from different regimens uh, in an Asian population versus a non-Asian population. I'm referring to the small cell lung cancer data with cisplatin and irantecan, which is superior in, the, I think it was a Japanese study. Okay, now if you look at the overall survival, hazard ratio 1.01 uh, plus or minus 33. <laughs> um, you pretty much, you know, so um, the, the, the cat, you know, initially the satorsib group is, is winning that overall survival curve and then they kind of cross, but not really. Um, so far at follow-up, there were 64% of people died who got satorsib, which is numerically more than received docetaxel. There were some patients who crossed over to receive uh, to receive uh, satorsib in the docetaxel arm. Uh, that percentage um, uh, was pretty low. It was maybe 
10%, 20, no, no, it's probably about 15%, 20%, 46 people total, so 46 out of the 170 or so crossed over from docetaxel to satorcid. Another few actually got a KRAS inhibitor. So, you know, this is a very wide 95% confidence interval here, 0.77 to 1.33. Um, it does not look like satorcid improves overall survival, whether you give it in the front, you know, initially, after your first round treatment of, of chemo and immune checkpoint inhibitor, or if you give it, um, you know, after docetaxel. Looks like the sequence may not matter here necessarily from an overall survival standpoint. Um, I think it was um, perhaps beneficial for um, the, the sponsor that they changed the amendment not to look at overall survival allowed for crossover because they can say that's why there was no overall survival benefit because you know, the drug was so good, the people that got it afterwards, uh, it made up that difference. Maybe that's true, but it's not like everyone crossed over to get to get a KRAS inhibitor. Uh, it was, you know, it was less than half of the people that did so. So, um, a little bit disappointing to see to see the, the efficacy here. Um, I think one thing that we need to consider, we think of, you know, KRAS G12C mutated lung cancer as a dichotomous variable. You either are KRAS G12C positive or not, but there are probably there's there are levels of positivity. These tumors are heterogeneous, so uh, how many how what percentage of those tumor cells have that KRAS G12C uh, mutation? Um, you know th that's something that uh, you have to consider, and I, and I do wonder if that that would make a difference. So, um, but the most interesting thing about this study, and there is um, it's really um, odd, not odd, but it's a little surprising when there is a major study published like this and um, the, the term no new safety signals is not used because that's used everywhere, right? So there is a new safety signal here and there are two things that I want to mention about that. So the rate of fatal treatment emergent adverse events, which is different than treatment related adverse events. Um, with satorcid, 22% of people in the study died from a from a treatment emergent adverse event, which means that adverse event happened while on treatment. Treatment related means the investigators said it was due to the drug. Okay, so one in five people died in this study while on satorcid due to reasons that are not very well described in the publication, compared to just 12% receiving docetaxel. Okay. So let's say that a treatment emergent adverse event could be um, pneumonia, right? Could that be from immunosuppression due to docetaxel? Could it be due to progression of the lung cancer that led to post-obstructive pneumonia that was difficult to treat, right? You don't know if that's because of the drug, because of a side effect, is it because the drug didn't work, right? So that, that would be an example maybe of a treatment emergent adverse effect. But 22% of people died on while receiving the drug, and, and we don't, we don't know what those deaths were. That's not described here. Um, there, the, the supplement appendix is really, really long, and it drowns you in data, and it's not real clear what these fatal events were. Um, there is another, you know, safety signal here, in that they did a post hoc analysis, and they found that there was a higher um, rate of treatment-related hepatotoxicity, severe grade three or worse hepatotoxicity, if you received an immune checkpoint inhibitor. 2.6 months or less before you started satorcept. And you're wondering, 2.6 months, how did they determine to look at that? Well, they looked at quartiles, right? So they looked at about 25% of people in satorcept, 
and they broke them into quartiles. So it's less than one and a half months, one and a half to 2.6 months, 2.6 to 6.21, 6.21 to 43.89 months. So anyway, within each of these groups, the rates of grade three hepatotoxicity, um, if you received an immune checkpoint inhibitor within a month and a half, 33%. And then it's 24% for a month and a half to 2.6 months. And then 14 and then seven, all right? So I'm just gonna read those again. And as you are further out from the immune checkpoint inhibitor, the rates of, of grade three hepatotoxicity go down. So they start at 33%, 23.7%, 13.9%, and then 7.7%. Now, grade three hepatotoxicity is not, it sounds obvious, but it's not really defined here. The rates of grade three AST and ALT elevation reported in the study are eight and 5%. Uh, and you know, if you have a, a high ALT, you probably have a high AST, but even if we just add those together, uh, you're at 13%. You're not getting close to this, you know, 19% total of people who had grade three hepatotoxicity. That number goes up to 20, 20% if you have an immune checkpoint inhibitor. So there's something here that, that isn't um, being translated into the text of the article that is concerning to me. Um, there is a, a history of serious hepatotoxicity if you use immune checkpoint inhibitors and TKIs together. Um, Ipilimab plus venurafenib way back in the day, uh, that study was shut down due to serious hepatotoxicity. And again, these monoclonal antibodies or IgG antibodies, they last for about three months, like normal IgG antibodies after an infection. So it makes sense that they'd still be a lot of them there, uh, even you know, less than 2.6 months, which is arbitrary. That's a, that's a statistical method they got to to arrive at that 2.6, okay? Um, there's a clear trend, the more recent the immune checkpoint inhibitor was, the more likely you were to have serious uh, hepatotoxicity. They don't report the grades, uh, they just say grade three plus, were there grade five hepatotoxic events? I didn't see that described here. So the, the, what I would bring up on practice, if you had someone with KRAS-G12C mutation, and they progressed on their immune checkpoint inhibitor combination with chemo, I, I would really think about when did that happen? And most of the time it happened right away. And then you're going on to your next line treatment. And I, you know, looking at this, it seems to me that the sequence didn't make a difference, it looks like. I think I might go to docetaxel first and save Satorcib later. Um, of course, you're, you're basically making a gamble that if you do satorcept in the third-line setting versus the second-line setting, that it's still a great target then, and you don't have uh, some other resistance to, uh, or some other subclone. Again, these tumors are, are heterogeneous. But certainly a concerning safety signal there um, with uh, hepatotoxicity with satorcept with recent immune checkpoint inhibitor use um, prior to beginning satorcept. That's the take-home message from Codebreak 200 for me. You can look at the PFS, but there's a there's a real safety signal here that needs to be that needs to be uh, mentioned and, and addressed. Okay, so the next study to talk about is from um, the journal Cancer. Right, this is the American Cancer Society journal, and this is a a uh, basically a survival prediction algorithm for elderly AML from the Leukemia Group at at MD Anderson. So they argue that you know we have the European uh, leukemia net risk stratification based on cytogenetics. Um, you know, there's, their argument here is that um, a lot of this were, you know, a lot of those survival 
those risk predictions are for for all patients and are based on people receiving intensive treatment. And we know that folks over the age of 60 don't do well with intensive treatment. So, so they went back and looked at everybody with AML at their institution from 2000 to 2022, and they have a, a validation cohort that's about, I don't know, 700 people, 1,000 people, and they, they validate it with another group, about 300 people, and they were able to find four distinct uh, uh, categories. So you're they, they have uh, identified eight. These are elderly folks kind of in the banana clacks era, right? Um, over the age of 60, 60 and older. So your, they, your favorable risk group, which is about 5% of the people they had there, had a three-year survival rate of 52%. Pretty good for AML, right? Then there's an intermediate risk, which is 21% of patients, three-year survival rate of 25%. Poor risk, which is the largest, which is a large chunk of 31%, a three-year survival rate of 11%, and then very poor risk, as a third of patients, the most, had a, an estimated three-year overall survival rate of 3%. So you're going from 52% to 21% to 11% to 3%. So very, very big separations on the curves here. Now, there are 11 factors that go into the scoring system, and um, you can get a score from minus one to eight. All right, so favorable risk is a score of zero or minus one, okay? And then favorable is 0.5 or 1, poor is 1.5 or 2, and very poor is greater than 2, okay? And here are the the 11 things that go into it. Age, all right, and you get more points the older that you are. Um, so if you're 62, for example, you're 64 or less, you get zero points. Is it therapy-related, AML? That's half a point. Did you have dysplasia before that? That's half a point. So age, therapy-related, dysplasia. ECOG performance status, so 0, 1 gives you 0. ECOG of 2 gets you 0.5, ECOG of 3 or 4 is 1. Do you have a pulmonary comorbidity? Are you uh, anemic, hemoglobin less than 8 or not? Um, your platelet count, if it's high, you don't get the point. Uh, if it's borderline low, you get half a point. If it's really low, you get 1 point. Uh, LDH, abnormal or not. Uh, cytochromal abnormalities, whether it's uh, how complex they are, you get more points. Infection and diagnosis gets you a point. And if you're using a venetoclax-based regimen, you get minus a point, okay? So with elderly AML, there are uh, centers who still consider intensive therapy. Um, how aggressive do you want to be? Um, and how does this affect plans to pursue maybe post-remission therapy uh, and, uh, you know, getting your affairs in order and stuff like that? So it looks to be a, a nice validated cohort. Not sure this will make it into uh, the guidelines, but I guess it will because the people that did this probably sit on those guidelines and they'll probably advocate for it. Um, so it's something that is certainly worth looking at to, to get a better idea of, of what the future may hold for these folks with elderly AML who come in all shapes and sizes and risk factors. Uh, so this may be helpful for those of us uh, in community. We see a lot of elderly AML. Uh, and so this can be helpful in figuring out, um, working with patients best to come up with the best plan for them, which is what we all want, right? Well, thank you for listening. Um, I appreciate it. You can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeepDip, as long as Twitter's still there. And uh, you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.